you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the book of Titus. If you have a smartphone or tablet, prefer to use that, go for it. We're in a series entitled God's Game Plan for the Christian Life. Last week we looked at God's Game Plan for Church Leadership. Today we're going to turn our attention to um, considering together God's Game Plan for Christian Conduct. God's Game Plan for Christian Conduct, and we're going to look at that from chapter 2 of the book of Titus. Let me read. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not sh- but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We're going to uh, consider today these three things as we think about Christian conduct. We're going to look at the foundation of Christian conduct, the features of Christian conduct, and the fuel for Christian conduct foundation of Christian conduct, the features of Christian conduct, and the fuel for Christian conduct. First, the foundation of Christian conduct. The answer is simple. It's sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is the foundation of Christian conduct. Verse 1, Paul writes, he says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What accords with sound doctrine. So as pastor of the church in Crete, one of Titus's primary roles is that of a teacher, So should it be of all pastors. One of the primary roles they have in the church is to be a Bible teacher. After Jesus' death and resurrection, but before he ascended into heaven, he had a conversation with Peter. And he said to Peter, turn to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. He didn't mean cook meals for them. He meant teach followers of Christ the scriptures. Feed them the Bible. One of the ways Peter was to express his love for Jesus is by faithfully teaching the scriptures to Jesus' followers. That's an outworking of love for Christ. Now notice the language Paul uses as to the content of Titus' teaching. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now in chapter 1, verse 9, it was a little different. Paul says their church leaders are to give instruction in sound doctrine. That is, the sound doctrine is to be the content of their teaching. But here it's a little bit different. Paul says here, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
That is, Titus is to teach sound doctrine and also the implications of sound doctrine, which in this context of this passage is Christian conduct. So there's two different bodies of material. Titus, the pastor of this church, was to teach to his people sound doctrine and the implications of sound doctrine. We'll look at those in a minute. But the foundation for this Christian conduct, the foundation of that is sound doctrine. Let me illustrate it this way. If you wake up, um, if you were to wake up one morning with no knowledge of where you are geographically and no understanding of what the weather was like outside, and you were to begin to approach the door, your loved one stops you and says, hey, it's 10 below outside. What will you do in response to that information? Well, hopefully the information, first of all, makes sense so that you can bundle up before you walk outside. The statement, it's 10 below outside, is sound doctrine. And it's meant to have an effect. It's meant to alter something in the future. That is your response to that message. I'm going to bundle up because it's 10 below outside. Now, if you're not aware of what reality is outside the walls of your house, it's 10 below and you just don't know that, it may lead to you making a decision that has some consequences. Or if someone says to you, hey, it's 10 below outside, but the statement just doesn't make any sense to you. Maybe you speak a different language or, or the jargon is off and you walk outside without a jacket leads to devastating consequences. Or if, if someone says to you, it's 10 below outside, and you just blow it off, you end up making a decision that's harmful to yourself. This is why instruction in sound doctrine in the church is so critical. It's so critical. Doctrine is not theoretical. It has real-world implications. Let me put it this way. Um, uh, imagine um, plucking a tribal leader from the Amazon jungle out of his home, transporting him to New York City and dropping him off in Times Square with no knowledge of American culture or the English language. How will he do? How cruel would that be? <laughs> For an Amazonian tribal leader to navigate Times Square with no knowledge of American culture or the English language is like us trying to navigate life with no knowledge of sound doctrine. It leads to confusion, angst, and often unpleasant consequences. The foundation of Christian conduct is sound doctrine. Second, the features of Christian conduct. So then Paul unpacks Christian conduct that accords with sound doctrine, and he does so by addressing five different groups of people in the church. Older men, older women, young women, younger men, and bond servants. Let me look, let's look at each one of these, one by one. Older men, he says this, be sober-minded, older men, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. There's a lot that could be said about what's on that list, but let me just, just pick up one and run with it. This term sober-minded means clear-headed, but it carries with it connotations of being inquisitive, of being curious, still learning. When I dug into this, it became apparent to me that Paul has some understanding of gerontology, I think. He knows that as we age, our tendency is to make more statements than we do ask questions. Paul is saying, listen, older men, don't be like that. 
That's not being sober-minded. Remain curious. Remain inquisitive. Ask questions. Refuse to believe you've got it all figured out. A couple of years ago, I got to spend a weekend with Gordon McDonald. Uh, Gordon, some of you may not know that name. He was a pastor for years. He's, um, he's an author. He's, wrote, he's written some, some bestsellers. Maybe his best-known work is Ordering a Private World. Um, he was a spiritual advisor to uh, one of our former presidents, so he got to spend some time in the Oval Office, and, and I brought him in to do a conference at our church, and I got to spend the weekend with him. So, so I know about his history. I know he's, he's got the pastor thing. He's got the author thing. He's got the spiritual advisor to the president of the United States thing going on. So I had a list of questions that I wanted, I wanted to, to mine his life for value and wisdom and, and nuggets. And so we're having lunch, and I got my, I have my list, and I'm about ready to fire off my first question, and he stops me. And he says, so, tell me about you. I said, well, what? Just tell me, tell me your story. I want to hear your story. I said, okay. I told him my story, and then I went back to my list. I was about to ask him this question, and he stops me again. He says, where do you see the church in 10 years? Where do you think the church is going to be in 10 years? He said, what, what impact do you think technology is having on our ability to do discipleship in the church? He had one question after another, and he wasn't doing it to be polite. He really wanted to know what I think. I didn't get through my questions. I got robbed. But I came away with that converse, from that conversation thinking to myself, man, here's a guy who's 38 years my elder. He's in his mid-70s. And he's poking the brain of a mid-30-year-old, a 36-year-old. I want to be like that. When I'm in my mid-70s, I want to have lunch with someone in their mid-30s, and I want to mine their brains for what they think about stuff. That is being sober-minded. An astonishing and a, a wonderful example I'll never forget. Second, Paul turns to older women. He says, older women, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slave to much wine. Teach what is good. Train young women. Again, a lot could be said about what Paul's unpacking here. Um, the words slander and gossip are very similar to one another. Sometimes we think that that's spreading false information about somebody. That's, that's not what they mean. To slander or gossip is simply to share bad news about someone behind their backs. And Paul is calling older women to refuse to go there. Don't be sharing bad news about someone behind their backs. He says they should train young women. This is a model we see throughout Scripture, the older teaching the younger. I'm glad we have an infrastructure in place in our mom-to-mom groups where, where that can happen where the older can train the younger. And so I want to pause at this moment and say to the older men and the older women in our church, show us the way. Show us the way. We have young people in our church who desperately want to look at someone older than them and say of them, I want to be like you. And that's a biblical thing to desire. Let me show it to you. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writing to this church. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. I urge you to imitate me. This would be different if Jesus was saying this, right? Okay, you know, Jesus is God. He, he could be the one to say, imitate me. But you have Paul 
a human being, saying, imitate me. He does this in, in Philippians. He does this in Thessalonians. He doesn't shy away from telling other Christians, I want you to watch me and follow my example. So older women, older men, show us the way. Show us what it looks like to live a life that accords with sound doctrine. We want to see it embodied so we can follow your example. Next, Paul turns to younger women to love their husbands, love their children, be self-controlled, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands. Much of this language is describing Christian conduct of younger women um, in the home. And I don't doubt that God calls some women to work full-time outside the the home. And that's great. That's fine. Uh, Ladies, just make sure that God has called you to that. And that you're not being drawn there because of the currency society places on a career outside the home. Our tendency towards self-justification looks at a career and says, see, if I have this title next to my name and I have these professional accomplishments, I can convince myself and the world around me that I'm valuable, that I'm consequential. That leads so many women to pursue careers they're not gifted for, not called to. Because we feel a pressure from the culture around us to demonstrate our value through some kind of professional achievement. My wife and I wrestled with this. During our first six years of marriage before our son was born, my wife worked full-time as an elementary school teacher. And um, we had decided pretty early on in our marriage that we would pray God would enable us to have her stay home with our kids if and when he blessed us with children. She felt called to being a a full-time homemaker. But when that era began, it caused some uh, challenges of identity for her. It was not easy. Because in our culture and our society, there's not as much currency in being a full-time homemaker as there is working outside the home. And this began to test for her to what extent she was deriving her value from a professional career versus deriving her value from what Jesus had done for her. You talk about finding your identity in Christ. We use that term in Christian circles so often. What does it mean to find your identity in Christ? Really, it means where do you look to get a sense that you're okay? Where do you look to find your sense of okayness? If I have this, you say, then I can be satisfied. That's what we mean. And men, women, doesn't matter. We often use career as that. Climbing a ladder, having a title next to our name, having this accomplishment, that accomplishment. We look to those things, and if we can see it in front of us, we can say to ourselves and the world around us, see, I'm valuable. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is saying, no, 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 no. Your value is not predicated upon your professional accomplishments. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are definitively valued through what Jesus was willing to do for you. That's your value. Next, Paul turns to younger men and he says, be self-controlled. Now look, I don't know why there's only one. I don't know. I don't know. I was going through the the slides with uh, Heidi, our director of graphics communication, and she immediately protested. Why only one? I don't know. 
says be self-controlled. Now you think about self-control, that covers a multitude of temptations, lust, ambition, impatience, being nasty with your speech. So while there's one there, it probably interfaces with every aspect to our lives. And he turns to Titus, he says, be a model of good works in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Titus is probably a young man, which is why his exhortations to him come on the heels of his exhortation to young men. And it may be that Paul is wanting to group them all all together. So he's calling Titus to be self-controlled. He's calling younger men to be a model of good works. And when you look at what Paul is calling young men to, it's really countercultural. Because our society has infantilized the 20-somethings. It used to be we infantilized the teenage years. But our society directly and indirectly has encouraged 20-somethings to expand the adolescent years. You can grow up later. You can learn responsibility later. Enjoy life now. That's not what Paul is saying to young men. He's saying, no, you need to grow up. It's time to grow up. You need to take life seriously. You need to take your faith seriously. You can't keep living for yourself. If you're a follower of Christ, that has implications for you now, not some later date. Manhood identity is in a state of crisis in America today. This, is, this has been where I've spent most of my time in ministries working with men over the years, and it's astonishing to me uh, how they don't know how, to know how to define what a biblical man is. I think it's the church's responsibility to take the lead here in helping to train our men to understand what God's word is saying they should be. One of the ministries that we're gonna start this fall to help us with this is called 33 The Series. Just to whet your appetite, I wanna show you the trailer for part one of that study. Let's take a look. Imagine with me for a moment what could be. Imagine a world where men lead in their marriages, where men lead in raising their children, where men lead in protecting those who are weak and oppressed. It is the most important journey you could possibly be on. Is there anything this world needs more than a bold movement of men to step up and be men. When you look across our own lives, we can see that there's a deficit there, and there's a great need for men to rise up and be the men they've been called to be. We're just not going to pull that out of the air. We're going to look at our model and the 33 years that Jesus lived on this earth. Men who don't transition well into middle adulthood, they usually fall to the major danger. You find yourself in between a rock and a hard place. If you let this happen, you'll find yourself in manhood hell. There's a lot that you can give a son, but the greatest gift you can give him is the example of integrity and a great name. That's a legacy. So you're not talking complex ethics here, right? Don't touch that tree. That, that's not hard. You see, manhood is imprinted. I refuse to let the 60-year-old me look back at the 20-year-old me like, what was he thinking? 
Imagine a world where men dominate areas of eternal significance. Coming this fall. Coming this fall. Last category, last group of people Paul addresses are bond servants. To be submissive to their masters, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing good faith. Um, some translations use the word slave there. In our historical setting, the word slave, the way it happened in the first century world, is very different than, it, uh, than we have come to understand it in a post-18th, 19th century America. Which is why some translators shy away from that, because they know our cultural uh, context is really going to sour our view of this. The slave of the first century is very different than the slave of the, of the 17th, uh, 18th and 19th century in America. This is why the translators of the ESV chose to go with the term bondservant. The closest thing we have are basically workers. And you look at that list that's described, their workers are to demonstrate a good work ethic, they show a good attitude while at work. Work makes up a huge chunk of our lives, which is why, um, men, this uh, summer we're going to offer a study, a four-week study called Being a Christian at Work. It'll meet Wednesday early mornings in June. Uh, that should be on that brochure that you received. I think it's on the back of the bulletin as well. There are numerous descriptors here that Paul uses to describe what kind of Christian conduct accords with sound doctrine. Now, briefly, I want to address two more. They're not in the text, um, but I want to show you a little, a little more explicitly how it is doctrine impacts conduct. Doctrine impacts conduct. The first is gospel-centered community. In American churches today, we often work hard to artificially manufacture community in the church by grouping people together with overlapping similarities. Some people might be in a similar life stage. We put together a newly married small group or, or a young professionals group. Some people are grouped together based on identities. The motorcycle, the motorcycle small group or the arts church. Some people are grouped together based on causes. The church may form a group around people who are passionate about feeding the hungry or fighting sex trafficking. Uh, some churches group people together who have similarities professionally, the movers and shakers group. Now, I understand the benefit of being a part of a, um, an affinity-based group. My wife and I have benefited from those. But if that's the sum total of what we call community, church community, that's not gospel-centered community. Sound doctrine ought to produce gospel-centered community. Here's what I mean by a gospel-centered community. A gospel-centered community is a gathering of people who have absolutely nothing in common other than their love for Jesus. Picture a 20-something white man, sports fan, no college education, working a blue-collar job, being part of a life group Bible study with a 50-something black woman with a graduate degree working for a Fortune 500 company who hates sports but can be seen perusing art galleries. And the two of them are in a group together. When the two of them can spend time in the same small group Bible study, we have an example of a gospel-centered community. Why? Because what has drawn them together is not a common education, common career, common life stage, common affinities. But what has drawn them together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about what the gospel accomplished. The gospel draws opposites together. Through the gospel, the infinite, unchangeable, perfect God has been joined together with finite, changing, and flawed human beings. That's the gospel. Where a community of people is shaped by it, we're going to see groups of people gathered together 
who have absolutely nothing in common other than the gospel itself. Second example, gospel-centered service. When it comes to serving in the church, what should sound doctrine lead to? What's the ultimate example of service? The cross of Jesus Christ. Ultimate example of service. On the cross, Jesus pays an excruciatingly high price in order to give us the greatest gift imaginable. That's doctrine. That's the doctrine of the cross. Sound doctrine leads to behavior that accords with sound doctrine, which means this should lead us to do the same, to be willing to pay a price for someone else's good. Gospel-centered service will lead us to be willing to pay a price for someone else's good. Maybe it means serving in the church, doing something you don't particularly enjoy in order to benefit someone else. That's gospel-centered service. Why not serve in the nursery? Well, you know, diapers. Not really my thing. Respectfully, I don't care if diapers are your thing. Whose thing are they? I do hope the gospel is your thing. Diapers may not be, but hopefully the gospel is. And if it is, the sound doctrine of the gospel leads us to say, even though changing diapers is unpleasant, I'm going to do it because it benefits someone else. It's a blessing to someone else. This is gospel-centered service. So let's look finally at the fuel for Christian conduct. Foundation is sound doctrine. We have seen some of the features of Christian conduct. Let's look lastly at the fuel for this Christian conduct because you'll never be this way through a sheer act of your willpower. That'll never work. Paul gives us a fuel source that propels us along in this Christian conduct in verses 11 and 12. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You want to know your fuel source for Christian conduct? It's the grace of God. The grace of God is the fuel source for Christian conduct. The grace of God is the thing that propels you along as you seek to work out your salvation. Now, what do I mean by the grace of God? Brian Chappell defines it this way. He says, grace is about getting God's richest blessings at Christ's expense. That's grace. And that's what makes the Christian gospel completely and utterly unique in the world today. Every other religion, every other worldview says you secure God's blessings through your label or your religious or moral performance. That's how you secure God's blessings. You perform well, you have the right label. That's how you secure his blessings. Every other religion, every other worldview says that. The gospel says no. Your title, your religious, your spiritual performance, your moral performance does not secure God's blessing because you can't possibly be good enough to secure his blessing. There is no way you're going to merit God's favor. There's no way you're going to earn God's blessing through the label you have or your moral or religious performance. But God says, I'm going to look at you. I have compassion on you because you're helpless. And I'm going to send Jesus in the world to live the life you could never live and to die the death you would never want to die. By putting your trust, your faith in what Jesus has done rather than your label or your performance, by putting your faith, your trust in what Jesus has done, you secure God's blessings 
Bible says the moment that happens, you are justified in God's eyes. You come into relationship with him through Jesus Christ. There is no other message on the planet like it. No other message on the planet like it. You receive God's blessings by grace. We're the beneficiaries of God's richest blessings at Christ's expense. So in the gospel, I can take a deep breath and rest because I have been richly and definitively blessed through the life Jesus lived and the death he died for me. This is grace. This is the fuel for Christian conduct. I used to live in the land of Lincoln. And uh, in Illinois, uh, legend and facts about this great man can become so intertwined, it's difficult to determine what's true and what's not. But the stories of his life seem to consistently reflect principles of his life, and those principles really do impact us today. One such account relates that, that Lincoln once gathered his meager savings as a countryside lawyer and cast the highest bid for a slave at auction. Having purchased her, he immediately set her free. She turned to him and said, Mr. Lincoln, are you really setting me free from these chains? Yes, he said. Are you saying that I no longer have to follow a master? She asked. Yes, he said, you can go wherever you wish. Then she said, I want to go with you. True or not, the account rings with truths that we, we can resonate with. Gratitude for release from slavery sparks loyalty to the one who provided the freedom. God has saved us at a price. The price was the life of his only son, Jesus Christ. And when we understand the price Jesus paid to purchase our salvation, it sparks loyalty to him. The fuel for Christian conduct, the fuel for godly living is the grace of God. Demonstrated supremely when God gave his son Jesus to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. Let's pray. Gracious God, I pray your spirit would give us a true understanding of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. Remind us of your grace that while we as sinners are deserving of your justice, God, you sent your son to be our substitute. You paid the price for the debt we incurred. I pray you would cause that penny to drop in us. I pray the evidence of receiving your grace in our lives would be plain and visible. Having received your unmerited favor, God, our lives would reflect our gratitude for you and what you've done for us. We ask this in the beautiful and saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And God's people said, amen. amen.